0: This is Power Lunch, an hour to talk lightning hockey, the NHL, and how you're coping with the coronavirus. Exclusively on Lightning Power Play via the iHeartRadio app. Center point headman, right to go Score! Patrick Kudrow! Welcome to the Friday edition of Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. Dave Mishkin along with Steve Versnick. Today, we have my conversation with Lightning television analyst, Brian Engblom about his long broadcasting career, and before that, his playing career. Without further ado, here is Brian Engblom. My guest today has had two careers in hockey, both of them really interesting. Brian Engblom has been the analyst on Lightning Telecast since 2015, but he has been a hockey broadcaster since the early 90s. And along the way, he's done a ton of work on national broadcasts. But of course, before that, he was a player. And early in his playing days in the late 70s, he was a part of those great Montreal Canadian teams that were one of the greatest dynasties in NHL history. So we're going to dive into what has been a really interesting, fascinating ride today. With Brian Engblom, Brian, how are you?
1: I'm good, thanks. Yeah, it seems like that that playing career was a hundred years ago today, but (laughs) it wasn't quite that long ago.
0: (laughs) Well, some people say that the middle of March seems like a hundred years ago when we pause the season. So everything is relative. Yeah, really. So going back to the beginning, you were born in Winnipeg and you grew up in Winnipeg, and it's typical then. You were born in the 50s, and now, I think, for any kid born in Canada, to play hockey and to get into skates. How old were you? Do you remember when you first learned to play and learned to skate? Uh,
1: I think my dad would take me skating when I was about three years old. Um, Obviously, he'd be holding me up. Um, I started playing on my own when I was about five. I think I started playing house league when I was about five, so... It was outdoors. We had an outdoor rink uh, a block and a half away from from my house. So that was terrific. I could go spend all weekend there. Um, Even after school, I'd go right after school, go home, take my books, grab my skates, go skate till dinner, and then come home for dinner. And if I didn't have any homework or whatever and there was ice available, they had two sheets. They had one for the games and for hockey players, and the other one had no boards on it. It was just a big frozen piece of ground right next to it. And, but it was certainly was good enough for skating. And then a few years later, they put boards around it as well. Um, so there was usually ice to skate on. So I skated outdoors. I never really played indoors till I was nine.
0: And Winnipeg can get cold. <laughs> we yeah. definitely know that. I guess when you're five, six, seven, eight, you really don't care how cold it gets, right? No.
1: No, it's right. And we would we would have ice from early November, sometimes depending on the winter, sometimes late October until probably Valentine's Day. Um, and then it would start to get iffy after that. Sometimes it went much later than that, too. You never knew. Um, but the ground stayed frozen a long time. I mean, I went skating when I was 25 below sometimes and, and just had, you know, a, a, a toque on and uh, dressed warmly and um, – Big myths, uh, I remember a couple of times where I'd be, I'd get angry because when I'm just learning how to, you know, take a slap shot, the stick, you'd be out there for hours and the stick would get so brittle, the stick would break, and then my dad would go, oh no, another one, you know, because they're, they're expensive, and I think, I think I remember when I was a young teenager, this is skipping forward now, I think he paid like 65 bucks a dozen for, for my sticks. Uh, but you know, at the tank time, obviously it's all relative and, and, uh, didn't have a lot of excess money for hockey equipment. And I had to be careful with my sticks, but Hey, when it's cold out, <laughs> they break that much easier.
0: See what I took from that story. I was curious to hear about the sticks and it makes sense, but in a rink with no boards where you're practicing slap shots, you really have a major incentive to hit the net, right? Cause if you miss, it's like, yeah chasing the ball into the next yard right
1: yeah that's true well I had to stick with the yeah with the on the main rink for the most part for that but yeah when the nets were up that's right and that's the other thing too can be incredibly frustrating because by January the snow is you're shoveling the rink and you help shovel the rink a lot and there were times when when played house league when I first started playing where you if it was snowing a little bit I mean, kids are, you know, we're bawling our eyes out. No, no, don't cancel the game. Don't cancel the game, you know, because there's snow all over the ice. We'd shovel the ice in between periods and try and keep it going as long as possible. By the time you get to the end of January, there's so much snow, you can't throw it high enough over the boards. You fall back onto the ice because the snow banks are so high. And I always said you could tell because my parents, God love them, always came and watched me every single game. And you could tell what time of year it was by how high they were above the boards. When standing there because the snowbanks were so high, it was pretty awesome.
0: Growing up in Winnipeg in the sixties was well before the Jets came in as an NHL team, and well before the Jets came in as a WHA team, did kids in Winnipeg have an NHL team that they followed? Like what was the what was the rooting temperature in Winnipeg when you were growing up for NHL teams?
1: Yeah, I don't remember a lot about when I was really small about, you know, rooting for even, you know, junior hockey, like the Western League or whatever. I don't have recollections when I was a kid of that. I mean, uh, they had, the you know, the Winnipeg Junior Jets for years, um, but I don't remember at what point that started. Uh, As far as the NHL goes, obviously, that's the old uh, six-team NHL, and I was a, a Leaf fan. I I was a big Johnny Bauer fan. and matter of fact, I wanted to be a goalie for a long time. And uh, my dad said, no way. You're not going to be a goalie. No. He said, first of all, I'd have a lot of trouble uh, trying to buy you equipment because it's so darn expensive. I can't afford it. But he said, believe me, what goalies have to go through, you don't want that. You don't want that. Be a skater. So I kind of dropped that quickly. But when we played ball hockey, I played goalie a lot. I liked it.
0: At what point, other than goalie, maybe, but at what point do kids who are getting into hockey and playing organized hockey get assigned to a specific position? In other words, when did you settle in as a defenseman?
1: Um, pretty much right away. Um, I get, think size, you know, I, I grew, you know, fairly fast and consistently, so I was always sort of one of the bigger kids. I think that probably had something to do with it um other some other kids were were faster you know so they end up being forwards uh I don't remember exactly how or why but I I ended up playing defense pretty much early on I think I played some forward when I was really young um I think everybody did you just kind of went all over the place right until you learn how to play the game um and then as I got older it was only really one year and I'm really glad I think I was 14 going on 15 I had a Uh, a coach in Bantam who said, you need to play some forward. He was an experienced coach. He said, you need to play some forward so that it'll get you skating more. It'll get you handling the puck more. And it'll also give you an appreciation for what they have to do and where they have to be. And uh, it'll give you maybe, you know, you'll get some more scoring chances. And that'll teach you something too. So I was really, uh, you know, glad that he did that looking back. But other than really that one year, i played defense uh, my entire life.
0: So the point comes where you have a decision to make in terms of where you want to go to play. You end up going the college route and you attend the University of Wisconsin, which is not unheard of for Canadian kids even in the early 70s to come play college hockey. But it was definitely not the normal route most Canadian kids do go through the junior ranks what went into that decision to attend Wisconsin and leave Canada at 18
1: that was that was a tough one um and it actually started a year or two before that maybe it was just fate uh but the guy who ran my rights were owned by Winnipeg the junior Jets and um my dad had looked into the situation. My dad was always very involved in, in my career and was my coach, you know, several times as I was a kid. Not always, but several times. Um, and the guy that was running this team was – he was not a, not a real good guy. So that really helped the decision. He, he was starting to find out – we were just all starting to find out, guys of our age, about the possibility of getting scholarships. My mother was a school teacher for 28 years. Uh, my dad quit school in 11th grade. So they, for their own reasons, they were big on education. Um, and uh, this guy had taken some guys and started playing them in the Western League at 14 and 15 years old. You play one game, you're ineligible. That was what the rule was. The Western Hockey League was considered pro because you got paid a little bit. You know, it was a stipend for, for uh, you know, food and whatever. But they classified it as that. And you were ineligible to go and play NCAA hockey if you played even one game. So we were made aware of that by the same coach who had me play forward for a while. <laughs> He's a very experienced guy. And he'd seen it happen to a couple of players. He said, you ought to look into this. There are some great opportunities. So Wisconsin was the first team to come to me early. I was in 11th grade. And they came to me and said, are you interested? And I said, oh, of course, yeah. So they were obviously watching me at that point. Um, and um, I got some communication from, from Dartmouth. Uh, I went, I didn't, I didn't take the trip there. Like, they'll fly you in for a day or two, right, and let you look around. I went through that. I didn't go through that with Dartmouth. Uh, I did with Colorado College. I went there. Um, and I went to Wisconsin. I heard from Minnesota after I'd already, I was Herb Brooks, uh, and I heard from him after I'd already committed to Wisconsin, which was Bob Johnson, and they did not like each other. <laughs> gigantic rivals. So that was almost comical. That fo- phone conversation with Herb Brooks was very short um, and very pointed, and he was not happy. But, you know, I hadn't heard from him. So at any rate, I nearly went to Wisconsin. Uh, through 11th grade, I was going to a private school. I was on a college scholarship there at St. John Ravens Court, which was a great experience for me. We had kids from all over the world. Uh, I went to school with two Rhodes Scholars. Um, and uh, so the education value was terrific there. So I was playing for the school and playing Junior B when I was 15, playing against 20. They allowed two 21-year-olds um, on, on each team, if you so wanted. So I'm playing against guys five and six years older than me. That was, that was a tough experience. You think you're good, and you, you find out that you're, you're not a man yet. and You run into a guy who's 20 years old, and you end up on your backside, even though when you initiated it. you know. So went through some of that. It's a quick education. Uh, but I took my SATs early, and then my parents and I just decided, I mean, I, they said, we'll take you out of 11th grade. We just decided that rushing it was not going to be a great idea. Didn't want to be struggling and affect my hockey, affect school, everything. So I, I, I left the some Ravens Court and went to public school where all the rest of my friends were. And I enjoyed that. And then I played uh, uh, Junior A Tier 2 League for the Winnipeg Monarchs. So uh, when you play Tier 2, it's not like the Western Hockey League. You don't get any funds at all. So um, I, Cam Connor who went on for a pro career. He played against him. Murray Bannerman was a goaltender at uh, in, for St. James. And Murray was one of the examples of, I said, that got ruined by the Winnipeg uh, coach and GM. Called him up when he was 14, played a couple of games. Then when he found out he'd like to try to go to college, he couldn't because he'd already played in the Western League. So he was an example of that. And Paul Baxter was my defense partner with Winnipeg. He went on to have a, a career in the WHA and in the NHL as well. So um, I played that one year and then went to Wisconsin for, you know, two years following.
0: It's interesting you had a chance to go after your 11th grade year because Wisconsin won the NCAA championship in what was your senior year, 1972-73. So you arrive as their defending champions, and you got to wear that mantle, right?
1: Which had to have been
0: kind of an interesting dynamic for you.
1: Well, I, my recruiting weekend at Matt in Madison was their national championship uh, banquet. They had won <laughs> it that year. So uh, I didn't go that next year. I went, you know, two years after that, but yeah, it was rather impressive. I don't think they had to say very much. And the facilities were great, even though that was the old building off campus and out of town that we played in Dane County Coliseum. Um, but it was extremely impressive. And by the time I came back home, I went, yeah, I'm going there, Dad.
0: Mm-hmm. What was it like to play for Badger Bob Johnson, who would then go on to – I mean, he was at Wisconsin for years. That's how he got yeah, his yeah. nickname. But he had a short but very productive NHL coaching career before he tragically right. died at an early brain age. Cancer. Yeah,
1: yeah, he died of brain cancer. Bob, the most enthusiastic man I ever met in my life. His signature line, and they, they have it up on the building in Pittsburgh, it's a great day, it's a great day for hockey. Mm-hmm. He'd say that all the time. He'd come out on the ice on his skates, bang his stick on the ice, and it's the first thing he'd yell out. It's a great day for hockey. And he always talked like that. He was very animated, rubbed his face all the time like this. We, his, uh, the nickname we had for him was the Hawk. He had kind of a curved nose, and he rubbed his face all the time. We called him hawk. But Badger Bob is the name that stuck with him um, all his career. He was, he was a very progressive guy. Um, he also coached the U.S. national team in world championships. That had a huge effect on him. He did it a couple of times. So the Czechs and the Russians absolutely fascinated him long before we started having very many Czechs and Russians come over and play at the pro level. And certainly not at college. I'm sure he would have loved to, but it, it just wasn't happening yet. He was ahead of his time. Uh, we, one of our power plays was the Czech power play. That's what he called it. We had two power plays. One was the, Colorado, the CC power play, the Colorado College power play, which he'd seen and coached against for years. And uh, that was a certain system. The other one was a Czech power play. And he'd say, all right, you guys, this unit, go out and run the Czech power play. So loved the Russians, loved the way they played, the puck possession game. Um, he was impressing that on us when, you know, everything was north-south in the, in the National Hockey League and at every level. And wingers on the board, centers in the middle, defense don't get up on the play that often. He was, he was already very progressive about that. You could regroup, uh, you know, defensemen keep your feet moving, get up on the play, join the rush. It, it was great. Um, he was overall, you know, a good tactician. He was a good matchup guy. I'm talking at the college level now and uh, he just liked that progressive play and a lot of action because of that we were I think a real fun team to watch now we didn't win uh, either we lost to Michigan State both years I was I was there Wisconsin and that uh, still sticks with me. <laughs> but uh, at any rate um, it was it was a really fun experience I don't think he, had, he wasn't like a great coach. I didn't, I didn't learn a lot from him about the position of playing defense, uh, but this was the team game and a different way to look at the game at the time, and it was, it was terrific.
0: You arrive in 1973, and after that first season, you're drafted by the Winnipeg Jets in the WHA draft in 1974. The next year, you would be drafted by the Canadians, and that's the route that you took. Obviously, why did you choose not to sign with what was your hometown team?
1: Yeah, I was drafted 22nd overall, but in both leagues, kind of funny, Uh, (laughs) should be a lucky number for me. Um, You know that it was so strange. I didn't even know until the next day I'd been drafted by the Jets. Nobody contacted me. And then somebody told my dad. And we both went, what? I, I didn't even know. So that kind of tells you a little bit about maybe the disorganization uh, that they had at the time Bobby Hall was playing there, and they had good teams for sure. And I was stunned, but I also knew, and my dad knew. Say, so, yeah, you're you're not ready for that. You're still ad- adjusting to, to the college game. You know, like by the end of my my freshman year, um, I, I had a good I had a good year, um, but uh, I knew I wasn't ready for the pros. So it was it was a pretty easy decision but I was quite frankly stunned that I was basically drafted, you know, underage by them. Um, So I just, I just let it go. And, and uh, I knew I needed at least another year. So when I got drafted by Montreal the following year, um, I was, I just wanted to go. I wanted to give it a shot. I'm not sure. I was that I wasn't ready for the NHL. That's for sure. I found that out pretty quickly in training camp, but I think I was, I was kind of bored with school, you know, to be honest with you. And certainly people are saying, hey, just, just go, you know. But people tell you a lot of things. When I went to college, people, you know, around the city of Winnipeg would say, hey, if you want to be a pro hockey player, don't go to college. Guys, you know, just don't make it. So, you know, I went against that. And I was willing to do it. And then um, so, but I felt like, okay, you know, if I have to, you know, start off in the minors, I'm okay with that. And uh, it was, as soon as I got to training camp and training camp was over, I I saw exactly the kind of work that I had to do.
0: You experienced earlier, early in your career, a lot of winning, a lot of winning. (laughs) And we're going to go through that. But I was curious to note that Wisconsin won another championship and they won the championship in 1977, which had you stayed, would have been your senior year. Right. When that happened, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, of course, and you enjoyed a lot of winning, but was there any part of you that was nostalgic and, and thought sure. maybe had I stayed, I would have been a part of that team?
1: Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt. Um, I, I loved it. I loved my time at Wisconsin. I have encouraged so many kids over the years, whether it's go to Madison or whatever, to go down that route. And, you know, I've been asked a lot of times by parents and by by players since then, you know, coming of age and getting to that age, absolutely do it. It's a fabulous route to go, um, and you'll really enjoy yourself. And it's really good hockey. I mean, now the hockey speaks for itself. You know, you have tons of guys drafted all the time. But that was the fear is would you get drafted high enough for it to make a difference, you know? And so I got drafted by Montreal 22nd overall, and they said, well, are you going to leave school or not, right? So um, that's the other trick to it. So you're kind of playing both ends against the middle. I said, well, I'll go, but only if I'm drafted high enough. I want a contract. Otherwise, it's crazy for me to go. So I had a guy named Art Kaminsky, who was my first agent, who went to school with Ken Dryden. So he was the first guy, to the best of my knowledge, that really started recruiting good hockey players all across the college level because he understood the process. And he quietly talked to Montreal behind the scenes and said, yes, he'll leave if you give him a contract, but otherwise, no, we're just going to stay in school. So he was kind of moving forward. He said, yeah, they'll give you a deal. So I went, okay, tell them I'll go. This is before the draft. So I did get drafted. Otherwise they would have tried to maybe take me third or fourth round. 22nd was early in the second round at that time, because there were only 18 teams. So um, that's kind of the, the, the cat-and-mouse game that you play, um, and it worked out fine for me. They gave me a one-way deal, um, so I was paid the same amount. It's not like – and these numbers will really stagger you, Mish. You know that. I got a $40,000 signing bonus, and I signed a three-year deal for 22, dollars and $50,000, and that was uh, early second-round pick.
0: So you do arrive in the pro game. And you start off in Nova Scotia, which is the AHL affiliate of the Canadians, right. in the 1975-76 season. What did you find to be the biggest adjustment or adjustments going from the college game to the pro game?
1: Uh, the quickness, um, the you know the speed and the power with which they were playing. I had the size, you know, I'm almost six, just under six-two. I think I was about 200, 205 at the time. And so, you know, I, I was bigger than some guys, even, you know, a lot of the pros that, that uh, had played for years. But just the pace of the game um, overall, uh, and when you ran into somebody, again, you could, you could feel the difference. These are men who really know how to play the game. Uh, and then, you know, you have to get used to being overwhelmed by the stars. I mean, Guy Lafleur is out there. Yvan Cornway is out there, Dryden's out there, Larry Robinson, Savard, Guy LaPointe. Um, you, you're, you're, I was intimidated. There's no doubt about that. So um, I was there for a few days. Um, and we used to say, because <laughs> Halifax, I would drive to, to Montreal for training camp at the Forum. And then uh, you, get, you get back in your car and you drive the, west of the rest of the way to Halifax. <laughs> so the expression was always, start your engines, boys. <laughs> so I started my engine and went with the guys who got cut in the first round um, after the first few days. And uh, found out I was just, I, I had the size, but I was too soft and I wasn't quite quick enough. And, 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 everything was just not quite ready. So, um, it was an eye-opening experience, and uh, I had to get over literally the shakes the first day. I remember Steve shot the first day, of, and we scrimmaged a lot. There were like 68 guys in camp. There were you know, huge camps. So we actually scrimmaged pretty well the whole time. Very few drills, a lot different than today. Uh, and we would just play, play games twice a day. And uh, I took a run at Steve shot one time. We were going for a loose puck along the boards, and uh, I played the man – but his hands came up like this and he caught me right up under the chin with a stick and cut me a little bit. It was nothing that bad, but he just got one of those, you know, that's the way the game was played then too. So I went, okay. Uh, there was no fight or anything. Game play went on afterwards. Great attempt. And Steve and I are still good friends to this day. He came over, he goes, Hey kid. He said, cause he had his head down at the time. He said, don't ever think just because I'm not looking, that I don't see you. Don't ever forget that. And obviously I haven't forgotten that because (laughs) I I kept that in my mind the whole rest of my career. And believe me, it was an important thing, especially when he went in to play the Flyers a few years later in their building. Those were some wars in there.
0: 1975-76 would be the first season of four in a row that the Canadians would win the Stanley Cup, one of the greatest dynasties in NHL history. So their NHL team, they had been good already. They had won Cups in 71 and 73. They were a dominant team. Right. But what was interesting to me, and I didn't realize this until I went and looked it up in preparation for our talk today, was that Nova Scotia won the Calder Cup in 1976 and 1977. So you won right. two Calder Cups during your time with Nova Scotia. And I guess what struck me was their minor league team was that good too? How good were those Nova Scotia teams understanding that there was not a lot of room up top for a lot of these players during that time?
1: Yeah, there there wasn't any room. Believe me, I I was uh, not alone there, you know, coming out of college and even my my second year. Um, But there are guys who have been in the organization for four or five years or more. And, you know, there was no room because the team was starting to win the four cups in a row. Uh, And it was a who's who, you know, the National Hockey League. So there were 18 teams at the time. The American League was only six teams. So you're playing 80 games. We played Rochester 24 times (laughs) one year. 16 regular season plus the preseason plus we played them in the playoffs. Imagine that 24 times. And I'll bet you we cleared the benches in seventeen games it was that's the way it was you know in the seventies It was crazy it was stupid, but it was there was so much brawling going on, and they were probably the second best team in the league. Hershey was pretty good too uh, but Rochester was was Boston, and of course Boston affiliate and a Montreal affiliate say no more you know that's been that's been the way it is for for generations so yeah, so my first four years pro I won two officially won two Calder cups and then two Stanley cups. So this is like, Hey, this is the way life is. This is awesome. (laughs) You play all the way until June all the time. But yeah, we had a very dominating team. Al McNeil was our coach in Nova Scotia. And he really was the best coach overall that I ever had because he, uh, to teach me how to play defense and how to play at the pro level, what was important. And, you know, he didn't use kid gloves all the time, but he, he, I really liked him I really he was the best coach that I had and so i I learned a lot and grew a lot playing for al and I owe him an awful lot because of that um, he wasn't fancy like Bob Johnson was when it came to the overall offensive game because he was an old style defenseman himself for years in the National Hockey League so that's the way I was taught to play in many ways and yeah I, you know I had my points and stuff and things were working out well and I remember him saying to me at the end of my my second year he said I remember when you came into camp he said you were just big and soft and you weren't even close he said you were probably farthest away of anybody in my training camp the first year and now look at you you know you're you're the the guy that's going to be called up the first and I ended up you know um, uh, winning the Eddie Shore trophy as the best defenseman in the league that second year and made the all-star team so he said "You, you know you came a long way but it's because I listened to him and and applied it and it was was a great experience for me although the fighting you know i'd never really been in a lot of fights playing in in junior of course college you don't fight um so that was an experience uh john winsick included Mm -hmm. and i'll just throw in this anecdote you know the name Dave very well uh he was a little crazy he this was and it was in nova scotia we got in a fight and we're throwing them we end up down on the ice And my hand is right here, and he bit me on the wrist. So when I got up, he didn't puncture the skin, but you could see all his teeth marks on top and on the bottom. So I just went to the referee and went, see, and, you know, he gave him, you're out of here. So they wanted him suspended. I can't remember if he got suspended or not. I think he did for a couple of games. But Al McNeil told me later, he called the commissioner of the league, and he used to yell at him all the time. So Al's laughing while he tells me this joke and uh, this story. And he said, I don't want you to, you know, I don't want to put any pressure on you. No, no, no. I know you don't want to do that. Uh, you know, Winsick, you don't have to suspend him. I just want you to send him to the dentist and have all these pulled. <laughs> How about that? And I laughed like hell. And I'll, I'll, I think it was Jack Butterfield was running at the time. And I guess they both just busted out laughing after mm-hmm. that. That was, That's my John Winsick story. Uh, although I got a few others after that. <laughs>
0: Well, you mentioned that you were told you would be the next call-up. And yeah. in the spring of 1977, you are called up. And it's not for, like, the second-to-last regular season game and a meaningless game. This is the playoffs. Right. And this is the year that the Canadians only lost eight games all year, 76-77. Yeah. So what were the circumstances that led to your call-up? You played your first two NHL games – in a playoff series, on this team that's in the middle of a dynasty and maybe is the greatest of those four cup-winning teams. What was going through your head as you got ready for that first game?
1: Sheer fear and panic, for sure. Uh, yeah, that pretty much explains that they lost eight games all year, and that is the team that a lot of people pick as, you know, certainly one of the greatest of all time. You know, yeah, have the Edmontons and the – whatever, Detroit in the fifties, all that. But yeah, they lost eight games all year. So no wonder, you know, it actually made you feel better in some ways, you know, you're, you're toiling away in the America league and going like, where am I going to fit in? They don't lose, you know, why are they going to make changes? I think I got two preseason games at the beginning of that second year. And then the only real, the first real game I played was in St. Louis. I got called up in the playoffs. There were a couple of guys got hurt. And then, um, I think two more got the flu, so and virtually half the team had the flu. So I got called up to St. Louis. I remember Al McNeil calling me saying, hey, you're going up. It was like, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, here's your plane ticket. Get to the airport, whatever time it was. I get to St. Louis, and uh, it was weird because uh, the team – I get to the hotel. It's, I think it's right around noon or 1 o'clock. And all the players are in the lobby. They're leaving the hotel. There had been a small fire in the hotel. So they actually had to change hotels that day in order because of the fire. So all this confusion and okay, I just get with them. I put my head down on the bus. We go to, I don't even remember which hotel we ended up at. And so, yeah, I played that night in St. Louis and I, I was just stunned. I'm just trying not to make mistakes. And that, Especially on defense, I mean, you make a mistake, uh, and obviously it shows pretty quickly. You don't want to get beaten one-on-one, and, you know, you can't give the puck away up the middle, all those things. Um, So I don't remember how many shifts I got. I remember I got a penalty, and uh, I came flying out of the box, and there was a partial breakaway down the far far wing, Um, and I was able to get there in time and cut it off. That's the only thing I remember about the game, (laughs) of something that I did good. Um, but I probably, you know, really didn't play that much. But the, the interesting thing is, and people said that to me before, well, you got to play on one of the greatest teams ever for sure. And that's true. But the flip side of that is the fear, because everybody is so good, you don't see that many mistakes. When you make a mistake, it stands out like a sore thumb. And that's the way you feel. That's the way I felt. So I always felt this incredible pressure to not, you know, don't make mistakes, don't make mistakes, don't make mistakes, do it the right way. And so that was pounded into my head all the way along. And so I felt a tremendous pressure in Montreal um, all the time, not to make mistakes, because the team was so good. And I felt like everybody be staring at me.
0: And maybe to that point, the next year, you don't play a lot. And the main reason is, I'm presuming you're up, and you're Right. On a lot of nights, the extra guy, you only end up playing 35 regular season games in 77, 78, seven in the minors, 28 with the Canadians. Was that a difficult adjustment for somebody like yourself who had been used to, be, to playing regularly?
1: That was, that was ugly. That was, that was the toughest year of my entire career, for sure. Um, because, yeah, I was in the press box a lot. You know, the professional practicer, I was the, you know, the seventh, eighth defenseman, depending on, Rick Chartraw was technically a defenseman, but he played up front pretty well all the time because Scotty didn't really trust him on the back end, but he could drop him back if he needed to. So, yeah, that was sitting and watching, I think it, it, it hurt me. Um, and there were several times that I came this close to asking for a trade. I was starting to see players that I played with and against in college, um, and even you know guys that I knew from Winnipeg already in the league, that I knew I was as good of back then, you know, as good as now, and they're in there playing, and and I wasn't. So I was really frustrated and depressed at times, angry at times, everything. And I remember I, you know, it wasn't easy. I remember skating up to Scotty Bowman after at a morning skate when I found out that I wasn't playing. Um, I just skated up beside him. I took a deep breath because I, you know, I never talked to him, you know, we never really had much communication at all. I said, I I just want to know why I'm I'm not playing. And I remember he just turned around and barked at me. And and he said, he said something to the effect of, oh, you think you're pretty good, huh? I went, my reaction was, well, if I don't, who's going to? And I just skated away. He didn't say anything, um, which I didn't expect him to. But I was just trying to stand up for myself, and my heart was beating out of my chest because I'm not geared that way. I don't normally do that. Uh, but I did play a couple of games um, after that, so he gave me a chance. I think, and, you know, you look at Scotty's history, I think, you know, he, he respected that fact, and he knows nobody wants to sit and watch. So, at any rate, it was, it was a long year for me, but at the same time, the team's winning, got to play a little bit. Uh, only a couple of games in the playoffs. And yeah, you win the cup again and you're in a parade. Yahoo! Not that, Not a bad life.
0: Things changed for you the next year, 78, 79. You're a regular. Now, Bill Nyrop retired unexpectedly and abruptly. Yeah. Was that a, a big factor in the door opening for you? Or were other things shifting as well, in addition to maybe you maturing as a player? Yes,
1: it was all those things, but you make a great point. Uh, it was shocking. We were in training camp, some mid training camp or the end of training camp, and we're at the practice rink one day. Something was, some event at the forum. And uh, we're out on the ice, we're about to start, and it's past, you know, 10 o'clock, whatever practice. And it was like 10 after, we hadn't started yet. Bowman wasn't out on the ice, and we'd seen Billy Niro and and walk in late. And we're all kind of laughing at him, like, oh, you're going to get fined. You know, you're late. You'll never make it in time. Well, it's longer and longer, and we're skating around. Next thing you know, we see Billy leave. And then Scotty comes out on the ice and said, uh, Bill Niroff is going to retire. And we're all like, what? I mean, that's the way it was. He'd obviously Billy was a very thoughtful, very quiet guy, really nice guy. And he was like the other guy. Uh, the big three, Robinson, Savard, and LaPointe, he was the other guy. And so that top four, those two pairs played a lot. Billy Nyrup was a hell of a defenseman. He's a real stay-at-home guy, uh, incredibly strong. I always kind of thought he was sort of uh, the Tim Horton on our team. For people who are old enough to know, Tim Horton was an incredibly strong player who played for the Leafs most of his career. But Billy was that kind of guy, just calm everything down, didn't get involved offensively, played with Guy LaPointe. So Savard and Robinson played together, and it was Nyrop and Gila Point, and they had the lion's share of the ice time um, <clears throat> in those cup years. And uh, uh, when Billy left, obviously it was a combination of the rest of us, and it did give me an opportunity to, to play more, uh, and that certainly made a big difference. Look, I mean, back then, the shift lengths, especially in big games and in the playoffs, were a minute and a half, two minutes sometimes. Larry Robinson, I remember I watched a replay of the the 79-too-many-men-on-the-ice game uh, Mm -hmm. in the conference finals against the Bruins, which is pretty famous now. You watch Larry. Larry's out there. I swear he never leaves the ice. He must have played over 40 minutes in that game, I swear. And Savard, probably not much less. So in big games, that's the way it was. They could just go forever. They were so smart, great shape, great skaters, but they knew how to rest, and you could do that. There was an ebb and flow to every shift, not the go, 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 you know, at 100 miles an hour the way the game is now. So that's why you could have even forwards. Gila Fleur could go out there for a minute and a half or he could play a whole power play, no problem at all. And he did on a regular basis. So the game had a different feel to it. And also, so because of that, you didn't get much ice time, too, because you had the big three available all the time.
0: How were those superstars, and they were superstars when you arrived, how were they two young players coming in and, and joining the pack, so to speak?
1: Everything across the board, Dave. Ivan um, Cornway, I, I can't say as I got to know him, he was our captain when I first came in those first few years. He retired after the 79 Cup, uh, which I think he gave him six at the time. He, he was old school. He was very proud, didn't talk much. Um, he was nice to me, uh, but I didn't. I can't say as I really got to know him. Serge Savard, what, it was the same thing. He didn't talk a whole lot. Uh, Gila Point. same thing. I sat right beside Guy. Uh, Yvonne Lambert was on one side of me, and Guy Point was on the other. And Guy could laugh and joke around, but at the same time, off the ice, I remember Guy saying a long time ago, We had a very professional team, very close-knit, because you don't win that much without being close-knit. But at the same time, it was very professional. So I didn't – some guys lived on the South Shore. We lived on the West Island, a lot of us out by the airport, opposite sides of town. So, you know, we didn't hang out. We didn't go to the same restaurants or bars afterwards. Our group did on the West Island. But I didn't see Serge and and Guy LaPointe and some of the other guys for that reason. (coughs) Excuse me. So um they were very good to me. Uh, on the other hand, Larry Robinson, still a really good friend of mine, was outstanding to me. Had me over to his house all the time, taught me a lot, talked to me all the time. Um Steve Schutt, uh you know, they didn't talk a lot, but as I said, we're still good friends. Ken Dryden, you know, kept to himself very much, was very quiet all the time. Guy Lafleur was, you know, superstar. Um, and he kind of had to be careful where he went because even then, you know, he was mobbed all the time. So I wasn't really hanging out with him. Bob Ganey, I know pretty well, Jarvis and Rysbrow lived up the street as did Bill Nairaub. And then you had guys like Mark Napier come in. Um, So we had, it was a mixture. There was certainly, you know, eight, eight or nine guys that I hung out with quite a bit. And then the other, some of the older guys, I never really hung out with very much. Maybe on the road, you know, we'd have a few beers or whatever, be at dinner. But it was sort of a a mixed bag. It was very traditional there because Cornway and Savard had been brought up like that. When you're a rookie, you shut up, keep your head down, don't say anything unless somebody asks you something. That's sort of, you know, the way it was. And I was fine with that.
0: So you look at the trajectory of the Canadians after 79. They don't win another cup until 86. So clearly there's a downward trend there coinciding with some of the retirements that you talked about and Dryden retired also after the 79 mm-hmm. cup. Right. But when you look at the teams immediately after the 79 cup and you were there for three more years, the regular season record was really good. The Canadians led the league in two of those three years and finished second in the other year but not much playoff success, only one playoff victory in those three years do you feel like you may have left some cups on the table they're understanding that was as the islanders were starting their run also but it wasn't quite like the team just fell off the map after the 79 cup right
1: no that's true but there certainly was a changing of the guard um, I don't remember exactly who left in which years but within a two-year span Cornway was gone after the fourth cup and so was Dryden. And I believe Lemaire was gone too. I think he went to Europe and played. So uh, you got three hall of famers right there. Savard was gone soon. Uh, he retired and then ended up coming back out and playing in Winnipeg because John Ferguson was one of his best friends. Uh, Guy Point was gone. Um, you know, there, there was uh, Yvonne Yvon Lambert got traded. Quite a few guys got traded. So, you know, the sequence players were pretty old. You know, a lot of... Scotty
0: uh, left, uh, 70, too. Sorry? Scotty Bowman left, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Scotty left, too. So that was, uh, that was obviously a, a big change. He went to be GM and coach in, uh, in Buffalo. So there was a big change. Sam Pollock was out of there. Irving Grunman came in as the GM. So there was a real different shift, a very different feel uh, to, to those teams. But, yes, it gave me a bigger opportunity. Uh, Rod Langway came in in 79 for that last cup. He was there for that last cup. And so Rod and I were partners um, pr- pretty much a-, a lot anyway from, you know, that year. Cause I remember we, in the 79 finals against the Rangers, Rod and I were out there against Espo's line a lot. We were kind of matched up against them and Rod would drive Phil nuts. He would just hack at him and whack at him. But that's the story for another day. Um, so, as things went on in the early '80s, there was a big change, and now I had enough experience in ice time. <clears throat> things were starting to get a lot better for me individually, in my career-wise. So, uh, by the time eight, 1982 rolled around, we had a good team, but we lost. You know, we lost early in the playoffs. One year we lost to Quebec. Oh my goodness, that was horrible. That was horrible. The one team you're not supposed to lose to is the Quebec Nordiques. If you're a Montreal Canadian, oh, that was that a long summer day? People just looked at you sideways, you know, because you're supposed to win the cup, not make the yeah. playoffs. You're supposed to win the cup. You know, that's the mentality back then, 70s and 80s in Montreal. And then we lost to Edmonton one year, Gretzky and Messier and Coffee and all those guys. And then uh, Minnesota, I think, one year. So, but for me, my career was getting better. And so because of the ice time, the way I'd been trained, um, you know, things were pretty good. So that 81-82 season, I ended up, uh, you know, being on second all-star team. And so I felt like that's, you know, certainly looking back, that was, you know, really at the time where I was really peaking in my career.
0: That fall, fall of 82, you are involved in a multi player trade between Montreal and Washington. Did that come out of the blue?
1: Yes. And no, yes. Um, I got a call from my agent who had, I think four of the six guys involved in the deal. So he knew what was going on. David Poyle had just become GM in the Washington Capitals. Now he's been around the longest serving GM I think in the league, right? So this is his first year and he's looking to make a deal. And from what I understand, I found out years later, it started off, Rod Langway wanted out of Montreal because being an American citizen, we were paying over 60% income taxes, people, in those days in in Quebec. Yeah, over 60%. And so Rod had complicated tax implications because he was an American, the only American on our team that I remember. He wanted out. And it was just financial more than anything else. So it started out was going to be Langway for uh, Ryan Walter. That's my understanding. And then it just grew. So then next thing you know, uh, Doug Jarvis, Craig Lachlan, and myself are in on the deal with, with uh, Langway. And end ended up being Rick Green and Ryan Walter going to Montreal. Rick Green was a real high draft pick. So was Ryan Walter. Ryan Walter is the guy that they, that they really wanted for the Canadians. So at any rate, my agent called me the, the, uh, a day or two before. And he said, look, here's what's happening. So yeah, was I stunned? Yeah, you bet. I just had, you know, the best year of my career. And he said, you know, you can probably, you know, mix this deal because he said, David Poyle said to me, you know, I we'd love to have Brian in on the deal. This started with Langway because he wants out. But if Brian doesn't really want to come, I don't want somebody who's going to be unhappy, which made sense, right? Mm-hmm. So he said, think about it. And we talked for a while and I kind of instinctively said, by the end of the conversation, I said, you know what? If if they're willing to do it, then I don't want to stand in the way. There's, you know, that means that that means something there for whatever reason. That was my first impression. So I said, no, don't say anything. If it happens, it happens, and it happened. So we went to Washington, and uh, Green and Walter came to Montreal.
0: So from nineteen seventy-five to nineteen eighty-two, you'd been with one organization. But in the final five years of your playing career, you would play for four organizations. Yeah. And at the end of the 86-87 season, you were with Calgary. You decide to call it quits. Did you feel it was time?
1: Oh, I I had to quit at the end of my career. uh, Injury related? Yeah, injured my neck. I I had fusion. I had spinal fusion, so... I'm solid from C5 to C7, which is the base of your neck. Um, I got, I got, I'd had problems for, I'd say almost two years, but back then he didn't say anything. I had a lot of stingers, a lot of headaches, a lot of neck problems. Sometimes I had a lot of neck a numbness in my hands because um, there was a lot of pressure on my spinal cord, which I found out later on. Uh, the last game I played for Calgary was, I got hit from the side like this, My head snapped snapped back and I went down on the ice and I was completely paralyzed for about 30, 40 seconds. I couldn't move at all. It was right at center ice, right, you know, right near the bench. I remember Bearcat Murray was the trainer then for Calgary and, you know, they blew the whistle because I wasn't moving. And uh, um, I remember Brent Ashton hit me and uh, I don't think it was even a penalty. I think his shoulder just caught me on the side of the chin. And so he jumped out and he said, what's wrong? I said, I can't move. I can't move anything. So he went into that real professional mode and just calmed me down and whatever. Anyway, I just laid there for a bit until feelings started to come back. You know, wiggle your toes, move your feet, move your fingers, make a fist, all that. And then all of a sudden it was like a rush. Uh, The doctor later described it to me. It's kind of like a garden hose, you know, put a kink in the garden hose and everything shuts off yeah and then it snapped back and then the flow starts again that's exactly what it felt like and then believe it or not they got me up and I skated off and went in the room that's how much things have changed you know since then nowadays they had a collar on me and you know taken off on a stretcher and whatever it was just different but obviously you know a lot of things came to light there and said we got to get you checked out I went to several doctors uh some said yeah they looked at the MRIs and whatever and said yeah you've got You've got uh, the vertebrae have been rubbing together for a long time. And so it creates extra calcium. Anyway, long story short, you got pressure on your spinal cord. And so they weren't gonna let me play again. And so it was a matter of, do you want to have surgery or not? So I went to two doctors in Toronto, no one in Calgary, one in Toronto, and they said, we're not touching this. There, there hadn't been very many cervical uh, surgeries, even in North America. There only been a few hundred in all of North America. Today, you have individual doctors who've done four thousand of them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's way different. So anyway, I ended up going down to uh, Greater Baltimore, Washington Medical Centers, where I had it done. And uh, I'm glad I did. It didn't fix everything, but you know they were, they were not going to let me play again. later In later years, both Gary Roberts and Steve Smith had similar things. So did Steve Payne. Now Steve Smith came back and played a little, I believe. Gary Roberts, of course, came back yeah. for quite a while. is was a great example. But already, the, you know, the science had come a long way. So, uh, yeah, there was no way I was, I was coming back after that. So it was a very abrupt end. I would love to have played for another two or three years. But, you know, I felt fortunate to play. You know, I was in my 12th year pro at that point.
0: You would have a few years before you got into broadcasting – which would happen with the LA Kings in the early nineties, but you had about four or five years there out of hockey. What was that like for you?
1: It was, it was interesting. And you know what? I, I, I needed to get away. I needed to sort of get out in the real world. I think because of the way my career had ended and everything, there was a lot of stuff, you know, going on in my head. And it's like, I didn't want to watch it. I didn't watch very much hockey. Um, I still wanted to be playing. It was a tough time for me. I got a job with uh, um, a friend of mine selling advertising um, in the program. It was um, a theater, the theater is in Los Angeles. I was living in LA. I moved back to LA because I still had my house there after I retired. And so I was selling advertising door to door and I did a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and then at, right at the end of that sequence of three, four years, whatever it was, I got a job at Merrill Lynch, took my Series 7 license, became a financial consultant. I was always interested and still am, you know, in the market. So I was doing that when I really got the itch to sort of get back into the game. And uh, I was fortunate that LA Kings had done simulcast for years, and they were going to split it up into TV side and radio side. i heard about it. So I called them and said, hey, are you looking for a, you know, an analyst uh, to on the radio side because I knew Nick Nixon, who had you know was the color guy, was going to do play by play, and I knew Nick and Bob, of course, Bob Miller, um, and so they said, "Well, thanks. You know, we're going to try and figure out exactly what we're going to do." And then eventually, they did come to me and say, "Sure, if you're still interested." They actually set it going into the playoffs that one year. I think what was it, ninety, ninety one, ninety two. To get the years. No, it was 1990. Um, and so I actually started in the playoffs, which was kind of weird. Did a few playoff games. And then all summer, I basically had to wait. So I quit Merrill Lynch on the spot, basically. I wanted that bad. I, was, I said, yeah, I'm fully committed. So I had to wait most of the summer for them to offer me a contract to do radio um, that following fall. I ended up doing four years with, uh, with Nick Nixon on the radio.
0: How big was your learning curve? when you started?
1: Um, well, Nick, Nick was great to me. He taught me how to talk about the game. I mean, when you've know, you played a long time, you, you know the game, but it's about getting the message across in the, in, in the required time, as you know, uh, and how to fit in. So just trial and error. You know, we'd, we'd talk, and he gave me lots of room to make mistakes and, and to jump in at the wrong time and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so you just keep sort of pressing forward. I didn't find it that difficult, really. And I certainly enjoyed it. I loved it. I, from the first time I did it, I knew I wanted to keep doing it. Um, and so I did. And so I did two years. And in, in 1993, uh, ESPN2 started up out of scratch. Seems like a long time ago. And it, that is. But it, literally, I had just heard. And people are saying, yeah, ESPN's going to have another network. Can you believe that? You look back now, it's crazy, isn't it? And out of the blue, I get this call from Tom McNeely, who was our producer for years. He introduced himself and he said, hey, uh, I don't know if you know or not, but ESPN2 is coming out. We're going to be doing, you know, so many NHL packages. Are you interested in doing some some, uh, games for us on TV? And I'm on the phone. I'm like, sure. You know, it just landed. He said, well, we'll fly out to Bristol, Connecticut, and, you know, you can have a sit-down, and uh, we'll talk about it." said, okay. So I went all the way out there, and the late Tom Meese, um, who was great to me, we just sat down in studio off, you know, a monitor that really isn't any bigger than my iPad right now, and we are doing a chicago Detroit game from that season. And I'm thinking, they said, well, just – put the headset on and talk with Tom about the game. And I I was, my eyes got big and I went, look, you know, you're kind of springing this on me. You know, it's summer. I haven't looked at anybody. I don't remember who number 14 is for Chicago off the top of my head, you know, the way you have to, right, when you're doing a game. And they said, well, don't worry about that. We're not worried about your memory and, you know, whether you can. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that's great for you, but that's how I do my job, right, is reacting and knowing the players' names anyway. We talked and we did a little bit of whatever and two bosses literally were standing leaning over watching us. So no intimidation there. Right. The weird thing was no stand up on camera, no nothing, which is, you know, what I was wondering about. None of that. Don't do an interview. Don't be interviewed. That's all they wanted. And then of course we talked a little bit. So I remember flying back thinking, "Eh, I'm not going to be doing TV anytime soon. And so then I get another call from Tom a few weeks later saying, Hey, we'd like to use you in a few games. I'm kind of the same way. Like, <laughs> really? Okay, great. <laughs> so then the Kings were really good. I missed actually, I think I missed about five games of radio that year because of, partly because of travel. You have to come in the day before. Yeah. Nick was great about it. The organization was great. They saw it as a positive for, for them and, of course, for me. And so I did, I think, six games. Um, <clears throat> So that would be my third year of broadcasting and then another six or seven games the following year in the same sort of format. And then I signed a full-time deal in uh, 95 with with ESPN and left radio.
0: There are significant differences between being an analyst on radio and an analyst on TV. And the simple way to put it is you're just juggling a lot more balls on television because you're talking to the producer, you're talking to the director, you're lining up highlights to talk about later, you don't have to worry about that when you're doing radio and also you have more time usually on television to talk. What was that adjustment like for you going from radio to television?
1: It was terrifying. It was like being at training camp uh, that first day <laughs> with Montreal Canadiens. Uh, again, my first game was actually in Tampa Bay and it was the Gretzky brothers playing against each other. And it was with Tom Meese again. I was petrified about the on-camera stuff when you first come on the air and, you know, you tee up the game. Um, and that's all I thought about. You know, the game was sort of, I, I did the homework, and but trying to figure out how to deal with the replays. And I had no idea about how to really communicate very much while the play is going on, of course. You know, because you don't do that in the radio. Nobody to talk to. Um, So I was just reacting to whatever replays they put up. Then on top of it, um, they told me right before the game, oh, by the way, um, at the first period is ending, we need to probably take the headset off early, run downstairs. You're going to do an interview with the Gretzky brothers. And I I just about vomited right on the spot. (laughs) I had never done an interview on television. I'd done them on radio but it's a totally different thing. Yeah. And I remember Mike Roth, the producer, he could see I was, I was upset. And he said, so you haven't done this before? I went, no. And I wanted, I, I, I tried to talk, talk him out of it. He said, no, no, it's already done. This is a great thing. It's going to be great. It's a Gretzky Brothers." And I'm thinking, oh yeah, great for you. <laughs> so I go downstairs. He said, don't worry, I'll talk you through it. Well, you, as you well know, That's something you really have to get used to, right? As somebody in your ear in television uh, talking to you while you are talking, setting up what's happening next. I was sweating like the guy on broadcast news, you know, and (laughs) it was Wayne was sitting, it was a weird setup. Wayne was directly to my left and his brother was beside him. So it wasn't like opposite them. We're all in a line, which was weird. Anyway, I get through it and I stumble through it and Afterwards, I'm like in shock. I wanted to go to the front door and leave the building and never come back. Never mind the second and third period. That's how shaken I was after that interview. And I thought, oh my God, I'm they'll never have me back. Now I was shaken right to the core. I don't even know what I said the rest of the game. And I remember Tom was great. He said, Well, oh, that was real good. You know, just he was just so good. And I'm thinking, liar. But, <laughs> but he, he was great and we did the game and then, you know, the wrap up at the end and everything. And I, I, I was physically ill almost after the game, I went right down to the room and after Wayne Gretzky was done talking, cause I was, you know, still part of, of the Kings, right. Doing radio. Yeah. Um, so I went right, right to Wayne. I just grabbed him by the arm after he was done with everybody before he left the room and I went, thanks for helping me out. Cause he did. He could see, you know, he'd just start picking it up. And his brother stopped talking or whatever. And I remember in the interview, I was going to end it because I wanted to get out of there. And then the producer was like, no, 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 ask him about this. And it was a picture of him and his brother on the ice after one of the cup wins in, in Edmonton. And I went, oh, uh, what about this way? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so it was stuff like that in the interview. So afterwards he went, yeah, he said, no problem. He said, I could hear the guy in your ear. So the IFB was so loud, I guess, and it was on his side that he actually could hear and the producer, you know, was trying to help me, but he's making it worse because even while I'm trying to ask a question, he's talking to me, right? So like, you know yeah. what that's like, man. Yeah. So you're kind of like this, right? Trying to <laughs> finish your thought, ask a question while somebody is saying something completely different in your ear. And that's why I was so shaken. And he said, ah, no problem. So afterwards, I was almost physically ill, and I went, damn, they actually want me to do some more games. <laughs> so I don't know how I survived that, but that's, that's how my first uh, television game went.
0: One of the things that I think you do extraordinarily well, whether it's on camera or into a microphone or if you and I are just having a conversation, is how well you can clearly and cleanly break down a game or a play in a way that is easy to understand for people who maybe aren't as invested in the game as you are. How long did it take you to hone that skill?
1: That's a good question. I, you just get, you get better at it as time goes by, certainly. I think I always have seen the game the same way. And, you know, you and I have had this conversation before. I've said to you that, like, I see the game as a former player. I like the individual matchups, and I, I look at the small pieces of the game. In other words, as compared to, you know, through a coach's eyes, I don't, I don't think of myself as a coach at all and never have. That's a different set of eyes. And some guys look at the game. Some analysts look at the game as a coach which is great, just the way they do it. Former goalies look at the game the way they do. I'm a defenseman. I look at the game my way. And, you know, goal scorers may look at it differently. We all come to the same conclusions in, from different directions. So I look at it my way, and so I've always seen the game. And then, yeah, the trick is to try and get it done and explained in the time frame that you have. And that's always the trick. And so every night you kind of battle with that. And some nights, even still, this past year, I'll come home and go, that one didn't go as well. I didn't get through what I really wanted to. And, you know, there are a lot of things going on in television, voices in your head, and you got to get the break, and, and, and. Um, but learning how to talk to the producer, and and uh, Brad Bartle and Rob Aller are terrific, you know, for, for us, working with Fox here, the Lightning um, that I can talk to them and they understood, you know, they learned to understand how I see the game. So when I'm kind of blurting out to the tape room, big George can roll. I always say the guys on tape, watch the enti- watch the entire game backwards because they're constantly <laughs> rolling tape backwards to get it back to the point where I want, you know, look what Victor Hedman did in the corner goals and assists and penalties. Those are, you know, no brains, right. You know, exactly what you're going to show. Well, I shouldn't say that. Goals, you want it rolled back to a certain point to explain the play. But there are a lot of things behind the play when nothing else is happening that we use replays on. So learning how to talk to them about roll it back to that, to that point in the corner where Hedman gets the puck and then the moves he makes and how he gets it out of the zone, that kind of stuff, that's something that just takes a while uh, to develop. And you have to get in sync with the people in the television truck and they have to have an understanding of, of how you look at the game. So it, it's a very complicated thing. As you know, you know, people have no idea really what goes on behind the scenes of a televised game, the stuff that that's going on. And then of course you, you have audio difficulties and, and things sometimes where one person can't hear the other and it's just stuff that you have to work through, right. And still get the game done.
0: I don't know if there's an easy answer to this question, but if I were to play back that Tampa Bay LA game from whatever, the mid nineties and you heard yourself then in what ways have you improved maybe the most as a broadcaster from the early days?
1: Well, that communication that I was just talking about, I had none, you know, I didn't know how to do it. And that's a huge, huge part of my job. Is being able to control what I want to talk about, things that I'm paid to look at and show the audience. Um, a good example is a too many men on the ice, or a bad line change. Bad line change is a good is a, that leads to a goal against for either team. If you have the look, and then the guys in tape have to look and see if they have it right. You don't always have have it, <clears throat> the right camera in tape sometimes. In order to you know to say well we don't have that, so then you have to improvise on the fly. So that has led to my ability to show the game the way I see it through my eyes, like it or, or not. Uh, that's the way I see the game, and that's the way I do do my job. So that has been the single uh, biggest improvement, and then you just refine it more and more, I think, as you go on. I did finally go back and watch that game. <laughs> I, I'll bet you it was 12 or 14 years later. I mean, it was that long. I said, no, I'm never, never going to watch that. I stumbled on the tape and I watched the Gretzky interview and I was sweating again before I even turned it on. (laughs) I was so upset, ready to see it. And it actually wasn't as bad, a big disaster as I thought it was. (laughs) like they say, you know, you're never as good as you think you are and you're never as bad as you think you are most of the time. But at the end I kind of went, okay, yeah, it definitely was not good. And thank Gretz for that. Uh, but it wasn't as bad as as I thought it was. So that kind of went whoosh, after all those years of, of not wanting to watch it. So I kind of got that monkey off my back a little bit and, and moved forward.
0: You mentioned Tom Mies, who tragically died young yeah. in a drowning accident. You also yeah. spent a number of years working with Dave Strader, who also also tragically passed away a couple of years ago Uh, how many years did you work with Dave and was that mostly national broadcasts
1: yeah that was all national broadcasts. yeah Dave Strader's great friend of mine um miss him dearly uh he it was the ESPN days that we both started off in and then led to through the versus situation into what is NBCSN now until he passed a couple of years ago um yeah did You know, I've never been one to count the games. I don't know how many television games I've done in my career. Um, I I wouldn't have known unless, you know, the NHL kept records. I wouldn't have known how many games I played. But uh, I certainly don't know the total number of games I've done. I did an awful lot, hundreds, hundreds with Strader along the way. And uh, there are a lot of different crews and combinations of crews over the years, both with ESPN and then certainly with Versus through NBC. But it was more in the uh, NBC SN days that uh, I probably did the most consistent games with him. And there was a point there where we were basically the the number two crew to Doc Emmerich and and Eddie Olchuk and McGuire. Um, So uh, it was was great. Um, The process of uh, working with play-by-play guys, that was also something that sometimes gets overlooked. I'm trying to learn how to do my job. And sometimes I wanted to say, you know, early on to the ESPN people, I'd be with a different play-by-play guy, you know, almost every game. So I'm at the point, I've worked with 22 play-by-play guys in, in my career. So at this point, that's, that's a good thing, you know, because I know how to adjust pretty quickly and get a feel for a guy pretty quickly when he's brand new to me. Uh, but in that process early on, where you think you're getting used to one guy and there's a flow and a cadence to a game, um, and you have, it's your job, my job, is to fit in. Play-by-play guy runs the show, and that's the way it should be. You're telling the audience what they're seeing and who has it and all that, and controlling the emotion of the game. My job is to fit in and then show stuff that we can along the way. Uh, that's the way oversimplification, the way I look at it. So I'm still trying to learn, and then I get thrown in with a different guy. And You know, a lot of you play-by-play guys have very different cadences, right, and, and pause and have different pauses in, in their voice, and you think they're finished and they're not, et cetera, et cetera. That's sort of an innate thing that you learn um, as you go along, and you're constantly changing to new guys. So um, it, it's never going to be perfect, and I think people realize that, even if you've been together with somebody – for 15 years, you know, you're still going to have that happen. You step on each other, but it's a fast game. Um, so that was uh, a great thing. Strader was extremely, you know, uh, fun to work with a great sense of humor, very funny. We spent a lot of time together uh, away from the ring, traveled together a lot, and you're in hotels. And the, the other thing, too, about as you know, compared to our recent years here with the Lightning, when you're national, you're coming in from the cold on your own and meeting up with your crews. So you're traveling on your own. It's a very individual uh, world sort of thing. And then you leave and it's great to get together with them. Um, You can, you know, meet the night before, have some dinner with a couple of people, whatever, get together with the crew. It's intense. You go like hell. And then the next morning you leave right for the next city. Whereas when you're with a team and that's the great part of, you know, why I love being with the Lightning and a lot of it has to do, certainly the organization and Jeff Finnick and everybody involved here, but also that that feeling of being on a team again, which I hadn't had in a long time, being in it and around it and living and dying with the team on a regular basis is a very different feeling. You're working with ESPN or NBCSN, you never win and you never lose. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can be a great thing, but also that connection is lost. And that's one of the great things that I enjoy working here uh, with the Lightning.
0: That was actually going to be my final question, and in a way you answered it. But was that desire part of the impetus to seek the Lightning job when it opened in 2015?
1: Absolutely. When I heard it was open, I, I found out who to contact right away. I wanted I mean, best case scenario all the way around a terrific organization, ownership, great, great weather, you know, great city, uh, terrific team. Um, Yeah. I went, yeah, that, that would be awesome. And again, because of what I said, yes, I wanted, I wanted to have that feel again of being part of it. And, and we are, and we aren't, you know, because we're, we're right on the immediate periphery. We're not in the room. We're not directly connected to the team, but it's the next best thing that you can have in our job because you're around the team all the time, you travel with them and, but you do feel that connection. You feel for them when they lose, you feel for, for them when they win. And that's the great thing. And having been in sports my entire life, um, that has been a great joy to be able to take part um, in all of that. Um, and it's been a great payoff for me. And the way I, you know, whenever I'm done with this, it'll be, you know, the great finish to the career sort of the way i started playing on teams
0: well brian i really enjoyed the conversation uh, i learned me some too. things today like i didn't realize your career your playing career had ended due to injury so yeah. i'm sorry about that but uh the ice's loss was the broadcast booth's gain <laughs> i guess thanks. and thanks for uh, taking the time to to share your story with me and lightning fans today
1: oh thanks i i appreciate it dave it was uh Um, it's always fun to you know trip little trip down memory lane and sometimes you forget about things and as i started talking about some of them more of it popped into my head but uh, yeah it's been great i've been truly blessed by this game and the people around it uh, including yourself and uh, i look forward to when we get back on the ice and start talking about it again
0: sounds good thanks brian thanks to brian for joining us on this friday power lunch have a great weekend everybody talk to you next week